Church, would you take God's Word and join me in Matthew chapter 7. Once again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23 this morning. Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. We're drawing very near to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing. Uh, We'll finish the Sermon on the Mount next Sunday. But as we draw near to the conclusion of this glorious sermon, this rich moment of teaching in the ministry of Christ, what we find is that the warnings and the applications that Jesus is making in this sermon, they are coming more quickly, more seriously, and much more direct into our hearts. Let your eyes fall back up the text just for a moment. Verses 13 and 14. There's a warning here. Uh, instruction that calls us to enter through the narrow gate onto the narrow road. Why? Because there is a broad gate and there is a broad road that many have entered through and are walking on that ultimately will lead them to destruction. Two gates, two roads, two destinations. We don't need to think there are many ways to heaven, many destinations at the end of the day. Jesus is making clear in the application of this Sermon on the Mount the reality of how we should apply this to our hearts. Then in verses 15-20, to which we saw a couple of weeks ago, reminding us of the reality that there are false prophets, there are false teachers, there are ravenous wolves that are among the flock of God. But do not fear, Jesus says, you will know them how. You'll know them by their fruit. And so we looked at what is that fruit and how do we distinguish between what is false and what is true. And then we're soberly reminded at the end of that text what happens to those bad trees that produce bad fruit. They are chopped down and thrown into an eternal fire of judgment. And then we come to today's text, still more pointed, still more direct application into our hearts. And the scene that Jesus sets for us in this text is not of a current day, not of a current moment, but of a future day, of a still future moment. Jesus gives us in these three verses, Jesus gives us a glimpse into a future moment, a future conversation of sorts that is going to take place on the judgment day. In the text before us, we see a conversation, if you will, between the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous judge of all creation, between Him and those who have walked the broad way after entering through the broad gate. A conversation between Jesus, the sovereign ruler, and between false prophets. A conversation, albeit very brief, between the Lord and between the lost. Both groups, both parties if you will, in this conversation are going to make certain confessions. Uh, Each is going to make certain declarations unto the Lord and then the Lord unto them. And as the scene unfolds for us in this text, we are met with 
piercing. I think maybe the most piercing and the most sobering words in all of Scripture. If there are more sobering words in God's Word, I do not know what they are. And so, what are we to do with such a pointed, pointed text? In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, the Apostle Paul says this, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I think, I read that verse because what I want for us together in this moment in Matthew 7, what I want us to do is I want us to take the litmus test of these three verses and I want all of us to take this test, to take this examination and to ask ourselves before the Lord Jesus Christ, am I truly in the faith? The text cries out a warning To all who are not. To all who are not in the faith. Not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The text calls out a warning. And it also sweetly beckons all who are not in Christ to come to Him. To receive Him. To know Him as Lord. And be saved through Him. Look at the text with me familiar refrain I think to many of you let it fall upon our hearts fresh and new though on this day not everyone who says to me Lord Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons? And in Your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew You. Depart from Me, You who practice lawlessness. There are two confessions in the text that I want us to study together this morning. Two confessions. Number one, verses 21 and 22, the confession of the lost. And then secondly, in verse 23, the confession of the Lord. Let's look first, though, at this confession. And there are a couple of different components to this confession from what, as we study the text, we will understand this confession is coming from those who are lost, who do not know truly, even though they think they do, likely even deceived in their hearts, what we find is that they are lost and do not truly know the Lord. How does Jesus begin this in verse 21? Not everyone. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a sobering truth right off the bat. That there will be many. There will be many 
In fact, all of creation will declare His Lordship, His righteous rule and reign. But Jesus says in verse 21, not everybody saying that is actually going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. There's a couple components here. Number one, I want you to notice at the beginning of verse 21 that these people making this confession, here's the reality, their theology is really good. Notice how they address Jesus. Lord. Lord. The word Lord here. In some contexts throughout Scripture, whenever you run across the word Lord, it can just be a simple term of respect. Like maybe you would say sir or ma'am to someone. In some places, that word Lord in both Old and New Testaments gets used term of respect. But that's not the case here. What's being declared here in verse 21 as these people make their confession before Jesus Christ, what they are saying about Him is theologically, it has theological depth and meaning and truth here. They are referencing Him, uh, giving this title that belongs to Him as absolute sovereign ruler and master. They are not flippant in how they come before Jesus. They're not flippant in how they address Him. They recognize who this is, and they address Him with a title fitting of who He is. I think we're reminded in this moment of a place like Philippians chapter 2, verses 9-11. to You remember that text? After the humbling of Christ to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul writes this, Therefore also God highly exalted Him, Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in this moment, they are are doing what We know that all creation is going to do. But don't miss the fact that when they address Him, it's not just, hey, good teacher or good miracle worker or good servant. They are addressing Him as the sovereign Lord, the sovereign ruler, the sovereign master of all creation. Recognizing in that title of Lord that He is the creator and sustainer of all that there is. Their confession theologically, is right down the line. Their Christology, what they believe about Jesus, at least as far as we can see here in this moment, is spot on. However, in verse 21, something is very wrong. Because what does Jesus say in verse 21? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who gets their Christology just right enters the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone with a proper understanding of God and His nature, His his character. Not everybody with all of their theological I's dotted and T's crossed enter the kingdom of heaven. 
We know that this is true, by the way, from other places in Scripture. James chapter 2 and verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe that. And they shudder. Not everybody with solid theology and the ability to articulate it, not everybody like that, verse 21, enters the kingdom of heaven. What we're finding in this already sobering text is that it is entirely possible for someone to know and to believe and to declare with their mouth that Jesus is the Son of God. It's entirely possible for them to be able to tell the Gospel story about Jesus. That He is very God incarnate. God in the flesh. The Son of God who was born of a virgin. Who lived a sinless life. Who went to the cross as the substitute. Who bled. Who died. Who was buried. Who rose again. Who ascended and is one day coming back. Not everybody that says and articulates that goes to heaven when they die. It's possible to believe that those things are factually true about Jesus. And then it is possible to declare that those things and so many more things about Him are factually true and still not go to heaven. What's going on here then? Why is it that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven. Look at the second half of verse 21. Here's who does go to heaven, Jesus says. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. But just notice what's happening. Verse 21, there are those that on judgment day they're making what appears to be the right confession. We, we would not argue with the way that they are addressing Jesus. He is Lord. He is sovereign ruler and master. But we understand now that something's wrong in that confession because Jesus follows that by saying, here's who does go to heaven. Those who do the will of My Father who is in heaven. What does Jesus mean? What is He teaching in this moment? What He's teaching, beloved, is that true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are truly born again in Christ, that they are marked by a lifestyle of obedience to the will of the Father. When Jesus says, He who does the will of My Father will enter, what does He mean? Is Jesus teaching here of a, a, a works-based salvation? That you must obey perfectly to go to heaven. Or at least, that your obedience has to kind of outweigh your disobedience. Is that what he's teaching here? We Hopefully, we know from Genesis to Revelation that salvation is a work of God's grace through faith, ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is not 
by the doing. It is not by the works of the law. But Jesus is teaching here in accordance with all of sacred Scripture that true children of God, that true disciples, that what will be true about their lives is that they will live out patterns of obedience to God and His Word. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by the grace of God and the gift of faith that He gives to us. A faith that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. But once we are saved, once we have been made new, what does Scripture tell us will be increasingly true about our lives? that we will be more and more and more conformed to patterns of obedience to God and His Word. By the way, brief aside, ladies, I think tonight you are in James 2, 14-26. Men uh, will be there two weeks from tonight. This is the whole point of James 2, verses 14-26. to What James is declaring is what Paul is declaring, what Moses is declaring, what Jesus is declaring, that we are saved by grace through faith, but what will absolutely be true for the believer is that there will be works of obedience, not to be saved, but because we are saved. Martin Luther said this, we are saved by faith alone, but a faith that saves is never alone. What does he mean? He means that we're saved one way and one way only, and that's by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But, once that faith occurs, there will be evidence of faith. Because faith has feet to it. It moves. It moves ever toward Christ and away from sin, ever toward obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Once a person has been made new by God's grace, once they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, once they have been regenerated and made alive by the Spirit of God, they will evidence that salvation by obedience to God and His Word. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you can say it with me. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things. New ways of living. New ways of thinking. New ways of having opinions informed by Scripture, not just by my own heart and mind. Everything about us becomes qualitatively new and changed and different by the work of the Gospel in us. What Jesus is saying in verse 21, one of the things that will be ever increasingly true about us is that we will do the will of God the Father. We heard a faithful sermon last week from 1 Peter chapter 1 from Stephen. And in that sermon, Stephen said this, obedience is the necessary result of salvation. It's so true that what will become true for the believer is obedience. And look, Christian, you're not going to do this perfectly. This is not what Jesus is saying in this moment. He's not saying that you will perfectly 
every single solitary time perfectly obey me. But what will be true for the believer, for the true disciple, is that we will be marked by this ongoing desire for and patterns of obedience to God's Word. There will not be perfection for you in obedience, not this side of heaven, but there will be a direction of obedience in your heart and in your life, in your actions and in your words. Biblical Christianity. The kind of Christianity that the Bible describes. Not that our culture describes. But that biblical Christianity, the only Christianity that there is, it is defined. It is marked by a reverence for God's Word that seeks to live out God's Word. And so then, true followers of Christ, when they sin, they will confess that sin. Repent of that sin. True disciples of Christ will have everything that they think informed by Scripture. Their patterns of living and speech and inward attitudes of the heart will begin to reflect the language and the truths of Scripture. True disciples of Christ, they will consistently have patterns of putting off sin and putting on Christ and His righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.19 Let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 8. Recall what Jesus says there, quoting Isaiah, speaking about the hypocritical Pharisees. He says about them, This people honors me with their lips. But what about their heart? Far from me. They say, Lord, Lord. They might even bow the knee, but their hearts, who they really are, is far from me. Charles Spurgeon said this, no verbal homage to the Lord will suffice. Not everyone that saith, Lord, Lord, enters the kingdom of heaven. We may believe in our Lord's deity. We may take great pains to affirm it over and over again with our Lord, Lord. But unless we carry out the commands of the Father, we pay no true homage to the Son. Our King receives not into His kingdom those whose religion lies in words and ceremonies, but only those whose lives display the obedience of true discipleship. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter. But he who does the will of my Father will enter. There's another component to their confession, the confession of the lost. Look in verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, that day being the judgment day, again, Lord, Lord. But then they add to their confession here, did we not prophesy in Your name? And in Your name cast out demons? And in Your name perform many miracles? Interestingly enough, these confessors, they come before Jesus now with things that they have actually done. So we're left to kind of wrestle with this for just a bit. 
Jesus says no one gets into heaven without obedience. And so then, their declaration, part of their confession is, hey Jesus, look at, look at what we've done. And they mention kind of three things that they've done in your name, Jesus. We have prophesied. We have made declarations. We have, we have we've preached. We, we've, we've taught. We've warned people. We've instructed people. We have, secondly, cast out demons. We know that part of the ministry of the disciples later in the Gospels, and later like in places like the book of Acts, that the apostles are given this power from the Lord Jesus Christ for a season to perform such miraculous signs, even to the casting out of demons. Lord, we... We, we, we went to bat for you. We, we went to war for you, Jesus. Surely, surely that's enough to give evidence that, that we can now enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we've performed, thirdly, all kinds of miracles in your name, Jesus. Jesus, just look at the resume. Look at the list of everything that we have done for you. Look at all of this religious activity. But even in reading verse 22, we know that even here, there's still a problem. And the great problem here is that all of these things were done outwardly without a true love for Christ inwardly. As Jesus will reveal in a moment in verse 23, there's no relationship There's just religious activity. And friends, know this this morning. There's a difference. There's a difference between religious activity and a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. These confessors, with their right understanding of theology, now look at Jesus and say, look at all that we've done for you. Look at the work that we have accomplished. We did this, this, and this. The problem, though, is that ultimately they are relying on their work for Jesus and not Jesus' work for them. So as a result, their lives are full of religious activity, but their hearts are far from Him. Again, Charles Spurgeon is so helpful for us here. Hear this. They said, Lord, Lord, but did not do the will of the Lord. They were very glib of tongue when they took to prophesying, but the message never came out of their hearts. They never did the things they told others to do. They were earnest to exhort, but not diligent to set a good example to their hearers. They cast out devils, but at the same time, they did not themselves escape from the power of the devil by giving up sin and following after righteousness. They failed in their manner of practical holiness. They had not the grace of God in their souls displaying itself in their ordinary, everyday actions. They could talk. They could sing. They could prophesy, but they were not obedient to the divine commands. And they did not walk in the ways of God. 
Friends, it is not enough to get close to Jesus. You must be in Jesus. It is not enough to get close to the narrow gate. you got to enter through it. It's not enough to be around the activity of the body of Christ. You must be a part of the body of Christ. It's not enough to confess Christ. You must actually possess Christ. And in verse 23, Jesus begins to make the distinction between those two. There's a second confession in the text. The first is the confession of the lost. And now in verse 23, the confession of the Lord. Look at the text with me again. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. The confession of verses 21 and 22 is met with a declarative confession from Jesus. The sovereign Creator, the all-sufficient Savior, the righteous Judge now speaks. And when He speaks and makes His declaration, it will be fixed and it will be final. And what proceeds out of the mouth of Christ I think is the most haunting statement in all of creation. I never knew You. Lord, Lord, look at all we have done in Your name. I never knew You. What does Jesus mean? I never knew You. Does it mean that He wasn't aware of their existence? Did they somehow slip through the cracks? Fly under the radar? Just kind of all of a sudden popped up on the judgment day and He was unaware of their life? Well, because of His divine omniscience, Jesus knows all things. Everything comes to being. It's held together by the Word of His power. So it's not that they just sort of slipped in and caught Jesus a little unaware. Nothing, no one, escapes His knowledge or His gaze. The word being used for knew there in verse 23, I never knew you. It's a Greek word, gnosko. It means to know on a deep, personal, intimate, relational, familial kind of way. Therefore, what Jesus is saying to the people is this. I was never acquainted with you. I never knew you as my child. You and I were never in any kind of relationship together. Depart from me. Leave my presence. You do not belong in this place. You are not mine. 
we have no fellowship together, depart. This harkens all the way back to Genesis 3. At the very end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. All of creation is now under the curse. Remember what happens to Adam and Eve? They don't get to stay in the garden. Depart. Away from the good relationship with God. You don't belong here. This place is not for you. I've not prepared this place for you. Because you're not my child. Depart from me. How does Jesus then refer to these people in verse 23? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus is quoting there from Psalm chapter 6 and verse 8, originally said by David, saying that to his wicked oppressors. Here's what's interesting about this whole conversation. In verse 22, hey Jesus, look at all the things we did for you. Look at all of our religious activity. Look at all of our good deeds. But Jesus' reply in verse 23 back to them is, you're actually a worker of lawlessness. Because you are not governed and led by and hemmed in and reigned in by the Word of God. You are a worker of righteousness. Your heart was never in it. You only cared about external appearances. You had this outward veneer of being religious, but you were actually lawless in your heart. You refused to be governed by the truth and the authority of the Word of God. I don't know you then. Depart from me. God's Word never impacted you. You cared nothing for it. You gave it no thought, no attention, no devotion, no obedience. You were led by your will and not the will of the Father. I don't know you because my people, my people revere and obey the Word of God. J.C. Ryle, if it will then be proved on the judgment day that to be saved means something more than making a profession. We must make a practice of our Christianity as well as a profession. There will be people on the judgment day and they might not say these exact words, but they will say, Lord, Lord, I made a profession of faith. I've walked an aisle. I got baptized, maybe even more than once. And they're going to hear, I don't know you. Depart. And they will hear that not because God is unjust, not because God is not fair, 
But they will hear that because their practice never aligned with their profession. They never, they never thought about it. They never cared about the things of God. They made a profession 45 years ago and then never, never did anything with that. Never was a part of the body of Christ. Never really served the Lord. Never cracked open a Bible. Never, uh, they were never convicted of their sin. They were never sorrowful unto repentance. They never gave thought to the things of God. Why would they expect then for Jesus to say, sure, come on in. We cannot expect, we cannot expect that we can have nothing to do with Jesus in this life and then have a place with Him for all eternity in the next. That's not how it works. The demands of biblical Christianity, the way that the Bible describes who Christians are and what they are like, makes abundantly clear that the Word of God will have an ever-increasing influence and impact on our lives. Again, you're not going to do that perfectly, but there will be evidence of the sanctifying Word of God in a true believer's life. Jesus makes this declaration in verse 23. And I I want you to notice that's the end of the conversation. There's no rebuttal. There's no but. What the judge of the universe says is fixed and it is final. Are you in Christ today? Not are you near to Him? Not did you sing about Him a few moments ago. Are you in Him? Is God's Spirit in you? Not, can you say true things about Christ? Do good things for Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in a relationship with Him? And does that relationship matter on a daily, practical level in your life? Are there desires in you this morning for the things of God? Do you have a desire for the Word of God? Are there patterns of obedience in your life to the Word of God? If so, rejoice. If not, repent. Let me say a brief word to Christians in the room this morning. The goal for Jesus in that moment and the goal of this sermon is not it is not to cause you to doubt your salvation. It's not the goal. It's not the goal. I think I think verses 21 to 23 I think it's a test. 2 Corinthians 13. I think it's a way for us to examine ourselves. But the goal here, Christian, is not for every single one of you to walk out of here not sure if you know the Lord or not. So, Christian, let me say this. If you are resting all your hope on Jesus for salvation, not your works, but the work of Christ, 
And if there is ongoing confession and repentance of sin, if there is ongoing desire and obedience to the Word of God, not perfectly, but is the overall trajectory of your life toward Christ. Some seasons that's going to be better than others, right? Sometimes you're going to be sprinting on the mountaintop. Sometimes you're going to be crawling through the valley. But are you moving, even if it's slightly, in your desire and in your practical obedience, moving toward Christ? If so, that's what it means to be a Christian. Rejoice. You are in the grace of God. If not, you are in grave eternal danger. And you must, you must today, you must this very hour, because you don't know what the next breath holds for you. You must repent. You must turn from your sin, from your best efforts, from your right theology, if that's what you're basing eternity on. And you must come to Jesus. You must be in Christ. So in a moment, we're going to pray. We're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper together. If you do not know Christ, there's one thing and one thing only I want you to do this morning. If you are not in Christ, do not, do not receive what comes in these plates in a moment. Let them pass you by. It is not yet for you. I want you to pray. I want you to call upon the name of the Lord. Trust Him. And lean on Him for your salvation. Christian, as you pray, I want you to remember this. That Jesus was forsaken by God on the cross so that you will never hear depart from me. I never knew you. What Jesus did on the cross was to make you His. And you, dear saint, will only hear well done. Good. and Faithful servant here is the crown life for you. Pray together. Father, we are we are sobered. Humbled Pierced. Um, being caused to reflect, test and examine ourselves. And God, we need Your help. We need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to help us rightly discern and rightly apply Your Word. 
God, while the goal is not for any true saint to doubt their salvation this morning, God, if there is anyone in the room that's not certain, God, would You take hold their hearts, their minds, their beliefs. God, by the Word which is a lamp and a light to our feet and path, God, would You illumine the dark deception of their souls? God, would You shine into the darkest, deepest corners of their heart? where they have been hiding behind a right declaration, a right theological declaration, where they have been hiding behind religious activity. And God, would You illumine by Your Word God, who they really are. To whom they really belong. God, do not let a single one of us from the pulpit to the pew. Father, do not let a single one of us walk away deceived today. God, thank You that the Gospel is true. Oh God, thank You that we were dead, but in Christ, we are alive. God, thank You that Christ was forsaken that we would never be. That is a grace and that is a mercy, God, that we still cannot begin to fathom. God, thank You. God, thank You that salvation, God, that it is not, it's not on us to do it. God, You are the author of our salvation. The sustainer. The finisher. Oh God, all of our hope is in You. God, I don't know what You're going to do in the hearts of people by the text. This but God, would You do it? God, would You do it? Father, as we prepare to take into our hands visible reminders of the body and blood of the Lord, God, help Christians to rejoice, to be glad, give thanks. May those who are still lost in their sins, may they be overwhelmed with such a sacrifice. No God, would they by faith Father, call out to You to be saved. So God, as we continue to worship, Continue to do your work among us.
we ask it. Christ our Lord. Thank you.